All right, let's look at our scripture that can be found in the bulletin. As we continue through the book of Romans, this is Romans 2, 1 through 5. Um, Hear the words of the Lord. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The word of the Lord. How do you know that what you are seeing is really what is? Now, I'm not talking about that kind of philosophical construct where how do we know this is all a dream and it's not really happening? Rather, how do we know that the assumptions that we have, that we don't even realize we have, when we are looking at other people, are true. See, we make assumptions all the time about people. I know that assumptions are made about me all the time simply because of my Spanish name. Right? He leads a Spanish-speaking church. His name is Carlos Rodriguez, or he's playing shortstop for the Yankees or something, all because of his name. It's an assumption. And assumptions are judgments. We are constantly interpreting the world around us. But where do these judgments come from? Well, they can come from our culture, right? The television, the movies that we're raised on, where we categorize people. You know, whenever you meet a Russian person, well, they're part of the evil empire, right? They're a spy who's uh, come to this country. Or maybe these assumptions, these judgments come from our family. We know of the evil scourge of racism in different parts of our country that was taught and carried on from family, from generation to generation. Or maybe these judgments of others come from our sin. That when we look at other people, we see that I'm not as bad as those people. We tend to judge other people by their actions but we judge ourselves by our our intentions. I am a good person that is a bad person. See, this passage is telling us that all of us can be poor judges of ourselves, others, and God. And when we take on the role of judge, we take on the role of God. We must let God's judgment of ourselves and others define us Not our judgment of ourselves and others define God. Because it's only then that we can live in truth. Otherwise, we will be living a lie. Well, how do we do that? The first thing is we need to recognize that we make incorrect judgments about other people. Secondly, we must also recognize that we make incorrect assumptions or judgments about God. We make incorrect assumptions about people, about God, and finally, we must fall upon his grace. 
So let us begin with point number one. We make incorrect judgments about people. Paul is speaking to the church in Rome. He's written this letter to them, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And there are some tensions that exist in the church. The Jews were expelled from Rome for a time, and they have come back in. So the church became Gentile, and Jews have flowed back into Jewish Christians into uh, the church. And so they're, again, finding ways, how do we live together and coexist, us who are from these different worlds? And Paul is writing this comprehensive exposition of the gospel where he's encompassing everybody, Jew and Gentile. And he's gone into this section here in the beginning of Romans where in order to understand the gospel, we have to understand the problem, right? It's like when you take the diamond, you have to put it on the black backdrop in order to see its brilliance. And that's what Paul is doing. He's showing the issues and the problems that we all have, irregardless of our background. Last chapter, he began this exposition of the problem that everybody knows that there is a God, but everybody rejects him. And that we all, at some time or another, have exchanged God and we worship something else. And out of that decision comes evil and covetous, and malice, and strife, and envy, and so on, and so on. Well, in this chapter here, Paul turns his lens specifically on Jewish people. It's not that the last section that he talked about, that all of us turn our backs on God, didn't include Jewish people. But we know that this section, he's dealing more looking at Jews, particularly a Jewish people as well as religious people who have a sense of moralistic superiority, those who look down on other people. See, there was a mindset of Jewish people that was, we are the chosen people. We have the law. We know right and wrong. And therefore, we are righteous because of our knowledge and our pedigree not necessarily our behavior. And Paul says, no, you are not. Paul says in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, is he bashing the Roman congregation? No, it's actually when he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, he's using the second person plural. If he was condemning the church, he would have been using, uh, excuse me, the second person singular. He would have been using the second person plural. Plural. He's employing a rhetorical device called a diatribe, in which he's uh, creating an imaginary, uh, an argument with an imaginary figure, this person, oh man. But we can find ourselves in this imaginary person, right? Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. In other words, we all do this, not just these Jewish people in that church that we have a moral system that we create or rely on that favors us. Whether it's the Jewish people, that we are the chosen people, or someone, we all can find someone who we think we are morally superior to. If you went to a jail right now, a prison system, you would be able to talk to a criminal, each criminal there who would say, oh yeah, but I'm a lot better than that guy. 
And as Christians, we are not immune to this, are we? That we look at our friends or our world's morally sketchy behavior, what they may watch, how they may talk about each other in the hallway and look down on them and say, well, I don't do that. And so we pass judgment on them. Notice what it says. You who pass judgment on another, you're passing judgment on them. Now, we should be able to pass judgment on behavior, right? Though we must be careful about that because we often don't know the circumstances behind that behavior. But we should be able to judge behavior. But what Paul is condemning is that you are passing judgment on them. That you in your mind are saying they are not worthy of God's favor. That they do not have value. They are not worthy of God's grace. We're stepping in the place of God and passing judgment on them. And Paul continues, you have no excuse for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. What things are these that he's talking about? It's that long list of things that uh, was in the passage last week, right? Envy, malice, strife, anger, covetousness, malice. It goes on and on and on. We may say, well, wait a second. I don't practice those things. Well, you're wrong. Because if we're honest with one another, there are times when we physically manifest those things in our behavior. We might dress them up in religious piety, such as gossip in the church, rather gossip than gossip in the world. But if we are not doing them outwardly, we certainly, from time to time, do them inwardly, right? Jesus says, if if you have hatred in your heart toward your brother, it is the same as murder. If you have lust in your heart toward another, it is the same as adultery. In other words, you... And I are doing the very same things in one way or another, things which we judge other people to be guilty of. In Matthew 7, 1, Jesus says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. See, the standard that we use is a sliding scale. It's different for us than it is for them. It's a weighted scale. It favors us. And we know what the Lord thinks of weighted and dishonest scales, don't we? Proverbs 11.1, the Lord abhors dishonest scales, but accurate weights are his delight. See, God wants a judgment that is right and true. And he is the only one who has the ability to see things objectively. We don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. It's only God that has the ability to judge people correctly. Now, are we supposed to not judge at all? No, but the only judgment we are authorized to do is with an eye toward restoration not condemnation. 
Jesus said in Matthew 7, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Notice what he says. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First, we must deal with ourselves, and it's only when we're able to see a rightly then we're able to judge correctly in a way that helps our brother rather than distorts and condemns our brother. So Jesus is saying that the judgment that we are bringing on ourselves comes from the fact that we are judging. In John 9, Jesus goes and he heals a blind man. Remember, he goes and there's a blind man. He goes and tells him to wash in the pool of Siloam. And this man comes back seen, and the Pharisees are flabbergasted. What's going on here? But the irony continues to build as this blind man who is physically blind is able to see more clearly than all of the religious leaders for who Jesus is. But these people are not willing to see correctly. They make a judgment. They say that this man, Jesus, is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And how does Jesus condemn them? He says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. How do we stop from being these types of people? We have to acknowledge that I, too, have stepped into the place of God. That I have become an arbiter of truth, judging other people with dishonest scales. So watch out, brothers and sisters. What is my mentality toward other people? Am I judging their behavior or am I judging them? Am I constantly weighing myself against others, keeping a tally sheet? a seeding chart where I'm better than this person, but they're below me, and so on, and so on, and so on. We must work on taking the plank out of our own eye because it's only then that we can make a right judgment to help our brother. We must let God's judgment of ourselves and others define us, not our judgment of ourselves and others define God. This brings me to my second point, that if we make incorrect judgments about people, we also make incorrect assumptions about God. Paul shifts in verse 2 to commonality. Notice he shifts to the uh, we. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. In other words, we, we all understand this. That people that do evil, that there is a consequence. People, and this word, that practice such things, it's in the present participle. In other words, this is the course of their life. This is the way that they live their life. But then he goes on with the first assumption. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He goes back 
to the second person singular here, this imaginary person. He's saying to this imaginary person, do you think just because you're a chosen person, if you're a Jew, that you don't need grace? Or do you think that somehow you are exempt from the judgment of God just by the very nature of being you? I'm sure most of us are familiar with the sordid and sad tale of Ravi Zacharias, who was a brilliant man, an apologist. Uh, He founded Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, where they would send apologists all around the world to speak in various college campuses about the truth of Jesus Christ. Ravi was the author of 37 books, and I've read some of them, and they're good. And they're right on in terms of their theology. And yet in the midst of all of this and his public persona, Ravi lived a secret, sordid life of sexual abuse. There's no way based on his behavior that Ravi was a Christian. But how do you reconcile this? This man who so was able to so succinctly and intelligently communicate the reality and truth and beauty of the gospel, and yet behind closed doors to manipulate women for his own personal gain on a regular, consistent basis. The answer is that somehow Ravi believed that he was not accountable for his actions that he was the exception to the rule. He didn't understand that every sin must be accounted for, and God cannot be proved to be a liar. He made God in his own image, rather than the other way around. And this brings us to the second assumption, verse 4. Or... In other words, do you do this? You who practice, you judge others and practice the same thing, think that you are the exception. Or, verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, is there something in you that says, God is gracious to me because I deserve it? Most people in this country believe in God, but not the God of the Bible. They take out all the attributes of God that they don't like, including that he doesn't really care how I live my life as long as I acknowledge that he exists. Most people believe that God owes me, and we presume upon God. But the scriptures are telling us that his kindness is designed to lead us to repentance. The goodness of God, which he brings into our life every day and every single person, no matter how hard their circumstances, the kindness of God is in their life in one way or another. But this imaginary person is abusing it. When we think about God, we may think many things about him, his power, his justice, even his wrath. 
But do we think about his kindness? You know, Jesus went about just doing a lot of good things for people, kind things for people. For love is patient and love is kind. Psalm 133 says this, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. See, you and I must recognize that we fall short. And we must compare ourselves to the right thing. That I am made in the image of God and that my standard is him. It's not my neighbor. It's not other Christians. It's not how I lived yesterday. And that will force us and lead us to the conclusion that if God kept a record of sins, who could stand? But it also leads us to this, that with him, there is forgiveness. That God is gracious and kind. And because of that, he is to be feared in the sense of honored and respected and lauded for his great love and character. For he does not treat us as our sins deserve, for as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great as he removed our transgressions from us, as far as the east is from the west, so great is his love for us. I got that backwards, but close enough. So examine your life and ask yourself this question. Am I a kind person? Remember the story in Matthew 8, where a master began his settlement, and he brought a guy before him that owed him something like $20 million, and the guy couldn't pay. And so he was going to send him and his family off to jail until he could pay. And the man begged him and said, be patient with me, and I will work it out. And the master took pity on him and canceled his debt. But this man then went out, and somebody who owed him 20 bucks came to him. But this man's heart was hard, and he refused to listen to his pleas and threw him in jail. And the master heard and said, you wicked servant, I canceled that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I've had on you? See, how I treat others reveals a great deal about how I believe God has treated me. For he who has been forgiven much loves much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. My friends, when we see our incorrect judgments about people and our incorrect assumptions about God, it should lead us to fall upon his grace. My third point. That I must recognize that I too had a debt that I could not repay. But Jesus Christ paid it for me. Unlike the parable, the debt was not canceled, was it? God may forgive sinners, but he never forgives sins. Jesus Christ got up on a cross and paid the price we should have paid. See, God doesn't owe you and I anything other than justice. And yet he's merciful and, graciousness, and gracious. 
And so at the end, after having paid our sins, he said the word, it is finished. In Greek, tatelestoi, which means paid in full. God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. And so you and I should live a life of thanksgiving and praise. We must acknowledge his grace. And every day this week, take a little time to thank God for his kindness that he expresses to us in Christ Jesus. To look for the goodness that he showed to us this day that we were maybe too busy to see or acknowledge. I don't know about you, but when I read this passage, it makes me think I need to pray to God. Give me eyes to see myself and others rightly, so that when I judge, I judge in love. We must let God's judgment of ourselves and others define us. Not our judgment of ourselves and others define God. Because it's only then that we can live in truth. Otherwise, we will be living a lie. Let's pray. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, that when I look at this passage and acknowledge that I am that man, who judges other people and forgets the reality that I was under your judgment, and yet you were gracious to me in Jesus Christ. Would you fill my and our hearts with your grace? Would you open our eyes to see that it is your kindness that led us to repentance? And you want us to have that kind heart to other people around us. Lord, would we judge rightly? And when we fail, May we fall upon your grace. May we let your judgment define us, not our judgment of ourselves and others define you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.